come to this scripture this morning, I've been thinking about where to go next. I finished up with 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago or last week or whenever that was and um, pressing ahead. I think I'm going to be doing a series on some topics that have always been in my heart and in my mind ever since I read a book back in the late 80s uh, called the, um, what is it, Defeating the Dragons or something to that effect. And it hits on a bunch of the issues, the ways that the church uh, conforms to the world. Individualism, relativism, pluralism, um, conformism. A number of these different ways that the church sleepily drifts with the culture of the current. The ways that we take in the culture through our pores and are, are shaped by it in ways that we don't even know it. It's often a generation ahead that can look back and see how the church in past generations was off or captured by the, the culture of the time. And so we're going to look at a few of those issues as we go on, but it's this whole idea of conform. You'll see the topic this morning, conformism. Is that even a word? I don't know. Uh, but it's, a, it's the name of the chapter in that book, and con- conformism, how we end up conforming to the pressures around us as opposed to being shaped in who we are and what we do and what we think from an internal compass. So we come this morning, if you'll turn with me just to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Where Paul tells us, don't do it. Don't be conformed. Right? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear then the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable, logical worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good. What is acceptable, what is perfect. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning, we come to you. We come to you in your word and we long to hear you speak. We long for you to speak the truth into our lives in ways that awaken us from our drowsiness, that awaken us from the ways that we are conformed and drifting, that we might see Jesus that we might see your kingdom and that we might more fully give ourselves to you, to seeking Christ and to seeking your word and your will and your kingdom. For we long to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the issue. Are we being conformed to the world? Or are we being transformed by an inner work of the Holy Spirit From the inside out, are we being conformed from the outer world or are we being transformed from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit? When we come to this section of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 here, these two verses are a transition. They're a transition from the 11 chapters that went before to what remains in the book of Romans. Right? Chapters 1 to 11, I don't know how familiar you are with Romans. If you're not that familiar, I... We didn't list the classes that are being offered. I don't know what I'm going to do because I want to go to all three. Right? Jim is teaching Zechariah. The young adults have the opportunity to go through Galatians. 
And uh, Herb Broadwater is going to walk us through the book of Romans. If you don't know, you got, that's one of your options in Sunday school coming up. Uh, but the book of Romans is one of the deepest and richest theological treatises that the Bible gives to us in terms of New Testament theology, of walking us through who God is and the, our fallenness and the realities of sin and judgment and of God's grace and His work of the Holy Spirit to renew His people. And He lays this all out and, and He ends in this whole issue of God's grace as it's understood in election and predestination, which in Romans 9 to 11. So they get this, this massive treatise where God, Paul walks us through, God lays a theological foundation in the lives of His people. And then in Romans 12, 12, 1 and 2, he, Paul starts out with this, Therefore, my brothers, I appeal to you. Right? Therefore, my brothers, my sisters, I appeal to you. And then the appeal, the appeal is the emotional part. He moves into chapters 12 to 16, which are the application of all of this. So what? If all of this is true, all of who God is and the fallenness and brokenness of the world in which we live by sin and, and there's the judgment, and yet the work of God's grace freely given to us in Christ. And he talks about the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, chapter 6 through 8 and into 9. If all of this is true, so what? And that's where it starts in chapter 12. He says, therefore, brothers, sisters, I, I urge you, I come after you then practically and morally and where you live. If this is true, it should make a huge difference brings it down to the rubber and the road. And he gives us a framework for all of this. Right? If you look at verse 1, the framework for all of this is he appeals to us and he urges on us the moral and practical implications of the gospel and of all that God has said. And he gives us a framework that is a motive for thinking about this appeal, this urge that he's going to make, that all that he says that we should be and to do, which is chapter 12 to 16, right? Paul says this is all true about God. It's all statements of fact and doctrine and truth and who God is and what he's done. And then 12 to 16 is, therefore, this is what you should do. This is what you should be. This is how you should act. This is how you should live. This is how you should think, right? And he, and he lays in these layer after, and you can read it if you want. You can go home and just, he lays it in layer after layer after layer. And the framework and the motive for all of it as he enters into this section of urging us to do something, the framework is, he says, in view or by the mercies of God. Right? I appeal to you by the mercies of God. I say these things to you. I urge them upon you by the mercies of God. The NIV actually puts the translation there. I kind of like it. It's a paraphrase, but I like it better. He says, in view of God's mercies. What does he mean by the mercies of God? He means in view of everything that has been said so far. Right? In view of God's mercy. Chapter 11, if you go back just a few verses into verse 30 of chapter 11. He says, you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy. Right? That summarizes Romans 1 to 11, that sentence. Once you were disobedient, read Romans 1 to 3. But now you've received mercy. God has worked for your salvation. And is in view of God's mercies. That is with the cross in your eyes. Right? With Jesus and what he has done in your eyes. Filling your vision. Filling your heart. Motivating your response. If all of this is true. He pleads with us to do something. And what does he tell us to do? He says present yourselves. 
present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a powerful image based on Old Testament. Most of you know Old Testament enough. You've got that foundation laid. You know, this sacrificial system. But there's a picture there then. He says, you guys are like a sacrifice offered on the altar. He says, but there are some significant differences with Old Testament sacrifices because you put those on the altar. By the time they made the altar, they were dead. The blood was drained. The life was drained out. But he says, Jesus has made that sacrifice. The sacrifice he wants of us, he says, is to offer yourselves, that is to present yourself, give yourselves, surrender yourselves. Living. That's harder. In some ways, I would rather, you know, it's a lot easier to, to die or to give yourself once than to have to give yourself every day in every context to give yourself again and again and again to make that choice again to bring our will and our heart back into line again for that, the decision to be consecrated unto the Lord, to love Him and to serve Him and to walk with Him and to, to daily. And that's what this means, though. He says to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. A continual one. One that goes on living day after day after day. It's continual. It's not a once and over. And he says, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, that is, set apart. Holy, that is, your, your whole selves set apart. You know, all of who you are, all that you have. Right, Your lives, your substance, your time, your strength, your faculties. Just to think about that for a moment, what it would mean to, in this Old Testament sacrificial sense, but living and continual to, to surrender yourself and all your faculties and strength and time and who you are and your personality and all these things and to offer them truly, lay them before God. Do with my life what you want. Do with me what you want. Send me where you want. Call me to do what you want. To be what you want. Surrendering ourselves on the altar. He says this is your holy, he says, and acceptable. I like the word acceptable. It's your living and continual, holy, your whole selves and all who you are, acceptable. That word is used twice. It's also right there in verse 2 at the end because God's will, the will of God and the word of God is good and acceptable. That acceptable means literally the word is well-pleasing. Pleasing to God. Right? To offer yourselves living, continual, holy, completely well-pleasing to God. That, at the end of it, that's what this is all about. Surrendering ourselves to live to please Him. Well-pleasing living to the honor of God. And he says this continual surrendering of everything on his altar, he says this is your, the word in the Greek is, is the word logical or reasonable worship. The ESV goes with spiritual, and I think there's, there's something good about that. This is the idea, the, the, the logical, the reasonable, which goes into the whole, I think this is your spiritual response, the right response to all that God has done. All right, so Paul here in just two sentences, really, these two verses sums up all of Romans 1 to 11 and says, this is who God is. This is the reality of the world we live in and who we are. And he says, and sum it up with all of this being true, what is it? What is our reasonable response? What is our reasonable, logical? And he says, it's worship. 
total giving over of yourself to God. Wholly surrendering your life to the pursuit of pleasing Him. Just imagine that for a moment. In some ways we say that. If I said that, some of you would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but think about that for a minute and think about the rest of your day today and your day tomorrow and your week. This idea of surrendering your life to the pursuit of being well-pleasing, pleasing God. This is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is the life that has been surrendered on the altar of His grace in the view of His mercies to be completely devoted continually and daily and wholly in all of our faculties and resources to the worship of God in the pursuit of Him and pleasing Him. But what makes a life well-pleasing? He says it's surrendered and it's given over to know and to do the will of God. That's what verse 2 is about. It's surrendered and given over to knowing and doing the will of God, to discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable, well-pleasing and perfect. Right? We are to be a well-pleasing sacrifice, knowing, discerning what is well-pleasing in terms of His will, which we find where? In His Word. A life surrendered to the Word and to the will of God. It's a truly beautiful and powerful and rare thing. Right? A life surrendered to the Word and to the will of God. It's a beautiful and powerful and rare thing, even in the church. But how? You know, where is this battle fought? Right? Part of us, and when we hear stuff like this, we read, I think it's all here, is to capture us, you know, and to, to, to inflame our desires. You know, I read this stuff, and I'm like, I want that to be me. You know, I want, I want to do that. It's so hard. And where is this battle fought? And you know that every biblical battle, well, not everyone, but most of the biblical battles, at least initially, are fought. They're an inward fight, right? They're a, control, they're a battle for the control of the heart. It's a battle for the control of the lordship of the heart. What reigns and rules over us. And again, are we being conformed from the outside? That what is reigning and ruling in, this, in my heart, so I'm being conformed to outward pressures? Am I being transformed by the renewing of my, my mind, my heart? He says there are two crucial things in this. And in terms of offering yourselves to him. And he says, what does it look like? He says, two crucial things. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't do it. And second, you do need to be then transformed, renewed inwardly in the heart and in the mind. Right? Don't be conformed. What does that mean? It means to conform something is to bend and to shape it to fit. Right? To be conformed is to bend and to shape it, to make it fit. It's to press and to force something into a certain shape. You ever feel like the world... The school you go to, the people you hang out with, the people you work with, the TV that you watch, the things that you're reading. Do you ever feel the pressure forming you, pressing you into its shape? You begin to think like that. You begin to live like that. Even sometimes we don't even know it and we are just taking that shape because the pressure's outside. One translation, it's a a paraphrase more like, says don't be pressed into the mold of the world. I think it's a great image. I think that's what drives right at the heart of what Paul is saying. Don't be pressed into the mold of the world. March to the beat of a different drummer. 
You know, the drumbeat, you got to hear it in here, right? You got to hear it as we press in to discern and know the will of God, you know, the will and the word of God that we might be transformed by it and not conform to these pressures outside. Don't let who you are be shaped and determined by outside forces. Why would any of us do that? Why would, why, we know we don't want to be conformed to the world. Why, so why would we do that? Let me throw a couple of things at you. One, one reason that we would do that is that sometimes we are the victims of our own ignorance. Ignorance just simply means you don't know. Some people think ignorance is, it's not about your capacity. You could be the smartest person in the world and be ignorant of something. It means you don't know about it. I'm, I am ignorant of the finer points of astrophysics. I'm, I'm, I, it's not that I'm, I might be able to learn it. I don't know my, the extent of my capacity in that. I'd have to go to... But I'm ignorant. I don't know. See, the problem is that ignorance can be deadly. If I don't know the classic symptoms of a heart attack, that could be deadly for me. Right? If I knew what they were, I could act quickly. I could take aspirin. I can call 911. I can, you know... Act very quickly. Get people to help me get what I need. If I don't know the classic symptoms of a heart attack, I might just think I got a muscle spasm and I ignore it for a day. It can be deadly. Ignorance can be deadly. And I think according to this whole issue, as we Paul lays out for 11 chapters, things you really ought to understand. (laughs) You know, stuff that we ought not to be. And he says at different points, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Right? You need to know this stuff. And ignorance, if we don't know what the Bible says about the issues, current issues of our day, as we approach politics, as we approach the moral discussions that are taking place around us, you know, the new tolerance that is pressing on us, not just to tolerate a view that's different than ours, but the pressure is actually to conform, to say yes, to agree. And if you don't agree, then we're going to vilify you. We're going to call you names. We're going to ostracize you. We're going to make you look like a narrow-minded bigot. We're going we're to press. You will be pressed into the mold. If we don't know what the Bible says about issues, we, our thinking can be dead wrong. It can be contrary to the Word of God and so to the will of God and shaped by other voices. The media and our friends and our co-workers who we listen to. But another reason we conform, not just sometimes are victims of our own ignorance, which is an argument here for knowing your Bible, for going to a class on Galatians or Zechariah or Romans or something. You know, get in a small group, get in the Scripture. Personal devotion, personal worship, spending time in the Scripture, seeking to know and discern the will of God, that we might be well-pleasing and can offer myself day by day doing what it says being what it calls me to be and crying out for the grace to be so. But another reason we conformed is sometimes we are simply driven by the need for acceptance and approval. I want to be, I want to fit in. I want to be liked. I don't want my coworker to think I'm a bonehead. I don't want my coworker to think I'm narrow-minded. I don't, I don't want my classmates to think that I'm uncool. You know, I don't want them to think. I don't, I, I want to fit in. And so, I go with the flow. I hop on the bandwagon. I enter the mob mentality. And rather than functioning through inner conviction, it comes through knowing and loving the Word of God. I end up being shaped and formed and pressed into the image of those around me and what they think. Who are we shaped by? Right? The American 
church subculture, and I'm going to come after us for just a moment because I love the church of Jesus Christ with all my heart. I had given my life and, and what I am to it's to this. But sometimes church culture is a funny thing. And it changes wherever you go. You go to Africa, the church has a certain culture. You go up north, where I'm from, you know, you go to New Jersey, you go up there, church has a certain culture. You go in the south, there's a certain culture, you go out west. You've got all kinds of churches and things that go on in the life of the church. But the American church subculture has the potential of being one of the fakest places on earth. One of the fakest places. What, what do I mean by that? I, because sometimes we are driven by the need to look good to other church people. I mean, is it, anybody? Anybody want to look good to the people down the pew? Anybody want to be thought well of by other church people? You know, and that, there's some that, that's, that's fine with that, but there, what behind it is, you know, there, there is no inner, there's no being transformed by the renewal of the mind and the heart if we're all hiding and we're all pretending and we're all faking it. You know, because the Bible says no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And I know I'm tempted, and I know I have issues, and I know I struggle, and I know that there, there are parts of my life in my parenting and in my marriage and in my thought life and in my heart, and I know there are struggles and there are temptations, and, and it's sometimes just hard and we get discouraged and all that, but we tend to cover it over. We sense the expectations of others that we should have... They have it all together, and I should have it all together. Isn't that what we basically tell each other? I think all of you have it all together. (laughs) So I'm not going to let on that I don't have it all together. But the reality is, either do you. And if we'd stop conforming to this culture of hiding, we can get down to the real business of growing, the real business of transformation and renewal, real change. Right? Real freedom from the things that bind us and tear us down. That we bear one another's burdens. We had a Sunday school on that last week or two weeks ago. It was, it was most excellent. Many Christians are a bit like the Wizard of Oz. Sometimes I think we come to church and, you know, we all have our Wizard of Oz thing going on. You know, the guy behind the curtain is fairly timid. He stutters a little bit. He's just your regular guy who's got problems too. He's stuck there or whatever, but he doesn't let on, right? He, he, projects, he projects a stronger, more powerful image of himself, a more confident image of himself. I am the great and the powerful Oz. Right? And sometimes I feel like we go around the church and we are the the great and the spiritual Christians who do not struggle. I couldn't help myself. My wife's going to say, what were you thinking? <laughs> the danger is that we become actors. There's a level of unreality about us. And, you know, not only do we not necessarily really connect with each other and and because we think we're pretending with each other, but the world looks on and you got a whole group of people who think they have it all together and they know they can't measure up. They know they're not like us, but the reality is they are. We're just pretending. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And sometimes I think that's the church culture. That's what we do. We practice our righteousness when we're together to be seen. 
you know, is the great and powerful laws. And then we go out and it's, you know, there's a level of unreality about it. We conform to this culture. And it's bad enough if we conform to a church culture of hiding. And there are other ways that you can think about that. I mean, you can unpack that all day, uh, church culture. But he says specifically, don't conform to the world. I think he's saying exactly what John is saying in 1 John. It's there in your bulletin under the second point, if you haven't found the little outline yet. 1 John chapter 2, John says this, Do not love the world. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in our possessions, all of this stuff, it's not from the Father. This is worldly. This is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Don't invest your heart there. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Isn't that what Paul is saying? These things are opposite. Do not love the world, but whoever loves and does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world. Love the word and the will of God to do those things, and they're opposites, and it's exactly what Paul is saying. Don't be conformed to the world, but give yourself over to discern what is the will of God, the word of God, and surrender yourself daily and completely to seeking to please him according to his word and his will and his way. The real challenge for us as believers is to be in the world, but not of it. It's a hard calling, I'll give it to you. Be in the world. This is my world. This is where I work. This is where I live. This is where I play. This is where I do all my business. This is our world. But it's a fallen world and a rebellious world. And we're inundated with voices of those who have no allegiance to God or His Word. And I think sometimes our conformity to the world is more subtle and pervasive and dangerous and the just loud voices of the new tolerance or some of the things out there. I think the ways that we tend to be conformed to the world are more subtle and and acceptable to us. They're more culturally acceptable, the ways that we look like the world. Too often we think of it in terms of our clothing or drinking or tattoos or, you know, there are a lot of superficial ways that people think about what it means to be and I think, brothers and sisters, I think we're straining gnats and swallowing the camel. And the camel, worldliness creeps in by every lifestyle choice. You know, the world is not impacted by the church because our lives and our habits and our goals are almost identical. There's very little difference. They would look at our lives and see a sacrificial, spiritually-minded, eternally-invested, life-giving, loving, um, humble, gracious impression of Christ and His kingdom, what they see is people chasing the same stuff they are, right? And doing the same lifestyle, we see them in the same vein. We fall into the same individualism and materialism and frantic lifestyle of the whole, you know, well-balanced and well-rounded life has to offer kind of a life, the American dream. We're too busy living the life. So Paul pleads, and he says, a true view of God's mercy. 
shatters it all. Right? A true view as he opens up. He says, read Romans 1 to 11. You get to 20. He says, the view of God's mercy shatters it all. It's life shattering. It's transforming. He says we need to be then not conformed to all the other stuff because in view of all of this stuff, there should be a transformation, a radical. And I like the word he uses here. It's, it's the Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis. Right? He says we need to be metamorphosed, you know, by a renewal of the mind. It's a great word, isn't it? Because it gives this image of radical change. Sometimes I used to buy, stay away from it because we made the whole thing with the caterpillar and the butterfly and but I think there's something powerful there, right? You have to think caterpillar and butterfly for metamorphosis, for radical change. So the Bible says anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old is gone, is it? The new has come. Transformation. You know, you've got to think fat, stubby little creature that crawls on the ground and eats leaves. You have to think sleek, winged creature startlingly beautiful and soaring about, right? There's this radical, which is what Paul is going for, right? He says, if all this is true, don't be conformed any longer to that. You've got a vision of God and of his kingdom and of his glory of eternal things that that matter not only now but forever. It is motive powerful enough to produce lives wholly surrendered to Christ. We can't miss the central role of the Bible here. He says, because he says you have to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Right? And then he says that we have to discern to know what God's will is. And so this recapturing and rebirthing of the mind and in, in, in knowing and discerning, understanding, seeing God's will. It's the good and perfect, acceptable, God-pleasing will. And doing it, it involves... Word and spirit. I know it always comes down to know his word and the power and transforming work of his spirit. John says, don't love the world. Love the will of God. You you know the word awakening? We use it as I wrap up. Let me just say, you know, we use this word. And that's what I was thinking of as I was reading this in terms of that life-shattering moment that, that the view of God's mercy should bring into our lives. And I think of the word awakening because it's a word that the church has used through the ages to describe times of renewal in the life of the church. It should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this word awakening, and sometimes, because it's the times when, when God's people wake up from the slumber and monotony of doing church and are suddenly and shockingly aware of life and death, of heaven and hell, of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, of burning spiritual realities. Jesus' call on our lives, and, and all that that means is it's unfolded in the Gospels, and God's holiness, and we are awakened like this, and historically, when people, when the church is awakened, the things of the earth become strangely dim. In the light of His glory and His grace, in view of His mercy. And a time of awakening is a time of surrender, where the church renews its surrender of itself to do the will of God. To seek God day by day, and to live out His will in the church, and in our homes, and everywhere else. 
Seeking after God becomes irresistible. An irresistible hunger and a desire to please Him becomes a consuming passion. Desire for transformation and renewal becomes an inward fire. You know, I'm just thinking about as we enter into the fall, all of our programs are studying, school starts up. These are just those moments in our own schedule. We're becoming, at least for me, and I don't my son went back to college yesterday. Uh, you know, my house is empty again, but my, my life returns to routine. And I know it because the church fills back up and people start doing, right? We said, what is the new routine? You know, let's, have, let's as I think about it, I would, I would love to see a new normal. Not just the plotting conformity that we've always plugged into, but a seeking after God that is irresistible, a, a desire to please Him that has become a burning passion and a desire for transformation and renewal that's an inward fire and a new continual surrender to Christ. I was just imagining, if you could imagine not being conformed to this world, you could imagine getting such a fresh view of Jesus and the cross and the things of God and who he is and what really matters as we all press on toward the precipice at the end. If we all got it and we were to literally surrender ourselves as a living and continual sacrifice, not conformed any longer to this world, but transformed, transforming by an inner work of the Holy Spirit, what would that look like for you? What would change? Would anything change? Would you describe your work, your life as a, my life is one of a transforming renewal as I surrender myself in the pursuit of God in His kingdom? I've been challenged, I've been since my sabbatical last year about this time. This has been at the heart of the thing in terms of, have I been carefully doing and structuring my schedule in church? Or am I surrendering myself Christ, laying it on the altar, laying me and it all on the altar, and take me and use me, set me on fire, wake me up, wake us up, I appeal to you brothers and sisters by the mercies of your God to surrender yourself to him, to renounce the world, what would that look like in your life tomorrow, to renounce the world hunger for transformation and seek to know and to love and to serve Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come this morning, it is so hard for us to get a clear picture of ourselves. We are lulled to sleep. We drift in the river. Our days are not days of passion. Father, but we would have you come and awaken us. We would have you come and work in the life of your church a transformation. You, we would ask that you would make us strangely free from the thoughts and the cares of this world that we might be free to know and love and pursue you and your kingdom. Father, we pray that it would start every day with us and your word us in your spirit, us in your presence, us pursuing you, laying ourselves on the altar and seeking change, transformation. Do it in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.